This is a special episode of Pine Talks. It's a conversation between Dylan and Andy, a former stockbroker, who discuss how Andy got into brokerage, his considerations when he invests, how the stock market works, and more. You seem to be very passionate as well about finances in general. How did you get into brokerage? Hmm. Well, it was a midlife crisis kind of a deal. I mean, you know, we, um, my career up to that point was, was in marketing and, and sales. And, and over the first 20 years of my career, I, I only worked for two companies. Um, extraordinarily diverse, I might add. In the, what sense? Uh, in the sense that my first company uh, was women's lingerie. <laughs> okay. I know you can't make this up. Um, and uh, it was a company called International Playtex. Um, and I can say that because of that company and because of the job I had at the time, I actually met my first wife. Okay. So it wasn't a total loss, you know. Um, you know, I was able to start as just a little sales rep here in the greater Boston area and, you know, gradually got promoted to various positions and wound up at their headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut. When my wife at the time got pregnant, and keeping in mind she's a mama's girl, she, you know, kind of forced my hand to move back to Boston. Mm. So I wound up leaving the company. The second position that I had of any, you know, magnitude was was with another pretty large company, a company called Philip Morris, and uh, that they're in tobacco. Um, and and uh, so I worked for them for five years, um, and I left because of the fact that uh, the person who hired me and with whom I had a great relationship wound up leaving the company. And because I was not a homegrown product, you know, in other words, when I say that, I mean, I came in at a pretty high level hmm. from completely outside the company. Uh, if you can imagine, I was not the most well-loved person because there were people that had climbed the ranks for quite some time and said, how the hell is this guy getting a national position out of nowhere? Well, I had the background and I also had my mentor. Hmm. When, when my mentor left to take a position at the British American Tobacco, I was naked. <laughs> And, and the handwriting was on the wall uh, and you know rather than go to the executioner which is where I knew I was going to go I resigned uh, came back to uh, New England, you know came back to Massachusetts um, without a job okay bought a bought a beautiful house uh, on the beach down in Plymouth um, with with no income with with no means of support well those are different days. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and bought the house from the bank, and they took back paper. So yeah, it was a pretty amazing thing. And then I said, I was like, you know, geez, I, I, I need to make some money. What am I going to do? I said, and I, I, I always wanted to, 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 you know, get into brokerage, get into finance, and all that. I was, I felt I'd be really pretty good at it. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's how that happened. And at the time, the decision, the decision was made to go with the company that's probably one of the best known companies uh, in. Brokerage, and they also had the best training program, which is Merrill Lynch. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And that's a whole story for, for another day, maybe. When you think about people's jobs and you think about meeting different people, you rarely meet a stockbroker. Like, it's well, a very rare job, and I think possibly it's because it's geographically locked, right? A lot of stockbrokers, stock if I'm correct, are 
Boston has some because Fidelity is here. Then there's a ton in New York. Right, right. And then realistically, I'm not sure where else. Well, there's there's a cluster. With in the, the US. With, with the advent now of high speed internet and all, I mean you can you can now be a broker pretty much anywhere in, in the world because you have the ability, number one, you can grab the information with a high speed internet connection, and number two, you can trade, okay, on online. But you're right. Normally, um, you know, they now are allowing you to even have a separate office. For example, if you have your license with Merrill, uh, I know guys that are working out of their house. Why not? So it's a Nowadays, there's a lot of remote work, basically. Well, yeah, you are working. In other words, what you have, you have access to what's called the Merrill Lynch platform. So you've got logins and plenty of security and all, and now you get onto that Merrill Lynch platform. You, you can bring up all your clients. You can do trading on that platform. You know, you can basically, you have an enormous amount of power once you have access to that. Um, and they will now allow you to, to work remotely. So in that sense, you can be a Merrill broker working for the office on one Beacon Street. You could be you could be working in Timbuktu and if they allowed you to do that. Here's a question which we've talked about in previous podcast episodes, <clears throat> which is, do you know if uh, the, they're paying you different if you work, let's say, in Wisconsin versus the main office? Yeah. That's that's an interesting an interesting question and. <clears throat> they have parameters in terms of what they what they will what they will pay you, and it's a lot of it is based on scale. In other words, the the higher producer you are, the larger percentage your payout will be. Okay, typically you're looking at forty percent, but you can go higher. When I say forty percent, you generate a dollar of commission. They get sixty cents, you get forty cents. Mm. Okay, but I've heard people go as high as fifty percent. And you also have introductory levels um, where they will give you an enhanced payout, uh, you know, for a certain period of time. But brokerage is interesting, Dylan. The fact of the matter is, because you need to be licensed and because there's such oversight. Keep in mind, now I came into the business having a good background, you know, in marketing, sales, and that type of thing, but I didn't have my license. Okay. Mm-hmm. And in order to even do your to even do a trade, you have to have your Series 7 and your Series 63 and all of these various things, and they take months to get. So that would lead you to the next question. How the heck do you support yourself during that transitionary time when you're not generating any income for the firm? And that's where they put you on a type of a training program. They give you a base salary. You're actually earning a salary during your, your training period. Um, and those salaries can be negotiated, you know, depending upon what your stature is. A, a rookie coming into Merrill right out of college back in the day in 1988 was paid 1500 bucks a month. Seriously. Uh, what's that a year? 18 grand? Yeah, $18,000. Okay. Um, that, in fact, was their opening offer to me, <laughs> uh, which, which uh, you know, didn't fly. Be- because I remember telling the guy, I said, you know, that's funny you should mention 1500 I said, that's, that's my monthly mortgage on the house. Yeah. I said, you know, so uh, if you want me to eat and, and buy diapers for my daughter, you know, I, I cannot come to work for you for $1,500. Yeah. Uh, so we negotiated something, uh, you know, fairly better better than that, yes. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, yeah, they always try to get you, don't they? Like, oh, listen. I mean, I don't know. This guy that I was speaking with, okay, he was he was the vice president of, of that particular office. And after all of the hot and heavy negotiation that we had, 
he, he said to me, and I believe he was lying, but he said to me, he said, Andy, we have never paid a trainee the number that you and I just agreed to. And I said, really? I wasn't going to say, you're lying, because it wasn't, it was more than double, okay, but it wasn't a huge number. Uh, maybe, you know, for 1988, it was, it, it was a salary you could live on, because you sure as hell couldn't live on 18, on 18 grand a year. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, he said, we've never paid a trainee. And I said, well, you know, I'm not your average trainee. I said, you're right. That's why you're here. Yeah. Again, on another topic, and I, this is something that I'm very curious about, because obviously, a lot of people are nowadays maybe thinking about investing. Things like Robinhood, which is the the app which you can invest and with uh, a lot of the transactions being free, a lot of people are going in and are thinking about whatever money they have, they might want to invest in the stock market. If you're not a stockbroker, is it possible? Like, and how easy is it to make money? And how does that wor- world look in general? to somebody who has no experience. Like, what should they do? What would your advice to somebody well, like that be? When you say making making money, in other words, if you're talking about investing and having the value of your investments go up, that's one thing. Um, without, you know, you, you cannot give advice, you cannot trade for other people um, without getting yourself into an enormous amount of trouble because of the regulations that exist. Well, okay? more mean, with your background and your experience and your understanding of the stock market, how, what would you think a regular person's chances would be? Like, can well, you, is it easy to make at least some money? Is it, you know, can you live on that kind of work mm-hmm. being a, you manage your own finances? If, if you were going to do this as a full-time job and if you had a reasonable amount of mental acuity, the answer is, yeah, you could do it. Now, the other part of the equation is you need to have a, a reasonably large nest egg. If you were to say to me, I have five grand, can I make... No, you can't make a living on that. You know, If you told me you had a couple of hundred thousand dollars, you know, you, you might be able to make a couple thousand bucks a month. But again, you, know, you have a risk involved. What, the way you're going to probably do this is with short-term type of trading, possibly even what they refer to as day trading. And the thing that's in your favor, if you're smart and if you're a little bit lucky, okay, the market at, at, the, at the peak where it's at right now, the market levels are so high that there is a significant amount of what we call volatility, okay? Mm-hmm. And so in a given day, uh, you know, a stock can be bought for for nine dollars in the morning, and and by the close it's at eleven. Hmm. Well, if you buy a thousand shares at nine fifty and sell it an hour or two later for ten fifty, you've just made yourself your couple of thousand dollars. Yeah. But then, what do you do if it if it goes against you? And now you're down a couple of grand. So now you've got to hold it, and then you've got to say to yourself, well, you know, you've got to set up parameters beforehand, particularly on the downside. Because the way to succeed in this is to let your gains run, if you can, and to cut your losses really short. Let's say that I buy a company X at uh, $100 per share, and I buy 10 shares. And then those $100 go, in the next three days, collapse to $50. What's the problem with me just holding that? 
Like, well, there's like, no there's no problem at all so long as you're not on margin. In other words, if you bought those ten shares at a hundred dollars and you paid the thousand bucks, okay, so you're not owing the you know you're not owing Fidelity or whatever any any monies. So you've just suffered a little capital loss, but it's on it's on paper, and and this is where it gets tricky. If if your mindset is still you know what I may have made a mistake on my entry point, right, which mm-hmm. was a hundred. But I am confident that this is a great company. So my advice to someone like that would be to say, "Have you got another five hundred bucks? You do. Buy another ten shares. Mm-hmm. Now you've done something called dollar cost averaging. You own ten shares at a hundred, and you own ten shares at fifty. That means you own twenty shares at seventy-five. Mm-hmm. Which means if the stock does go back to a hundred, guess what? You're profitable." Uh, and this is something that's been been done for years and years and years. Dollar cost averaging uh, usually can work in your favor because, especially now with the volatility, you know, when that stock happens to go down that day, who knows why it went down? Maybe the earnings were were short a nickel. Mm-hmm. Whoop de doo. So you pick it up at that price, um, and and sure enough, it'll recover. I mean, a lot of it could have to do as well with social media, and that's one thing. Because nowadays, okay, this happened recently. Uh, when we're having this conversation is Disney fired somebody, one of their bigger actors. Or rather, they didn't fire them, but they did not renew their contract, and they said they won't renew their contract. There was obviously an uproar but by people, and I think the stock price went down a little bit. And so this is something you couldn't have predicted, uh, as in three days ago, five days ago, when the news of, of them was not out. And I'm wondering how much the high flow of information of that kind of information has on the market because i don't see why the market would be that volatile now compared to 10 years ago if it's not something to do with information mm-hmm. well you know you're spot on with that but see that the fact of the matter is is that the information flow now is happening instantly okay so yeah. the information is flowing instantly and then human beings being human beings, but also the fact that there is an awful lot of computer trading where the parameters, and you would know this better than I, people that, you know, not so much people, organizations, mutual funds, enormous uh, investment houses are setting things up on computerized. What Basically, they're making bumps. Well, yeah, but, you know, in, in other words, they have a parameter. They will say, you know what, if, um, if Starbucks hits 103, we're going to sell 100,000 shares. Hmm. And, and, and there's not even a human intervention. When, it's, when it hits 103, that trade goes off, right? Mm-hmm. So that's your computer trading. And there's an awful lot of that, that, that that's going on. Um, but to answer the, the first question, you know, the information happening second by second and also disseminating it immediately. 25 years ago, you know, something could have happened at 10 o'clock in the morning. And guess what? It, you wouldn't know about it until 11. Mm-hmm. It would be an hour later. Now it's in seconds. This yeah. information is there. So that in and of itself has created a lot more volatility. Do you know what actually happened a few years ago? So this is still, we're still talking about personal finance because I have a point that I'm trying to make. And I'm lo- a question rather that I would like to ask. And there was a very, very big dip in the price of the pound versus the euro at some point. And initially nobody knew why. And it was like in in probably an hour, the price used by 10%, I think it was. Like huge dip, nobody knew what. And apparently later with analyses, etc., what came out was that Hollande, so that tells you 
François Hollande, who was the president of France back five years ago, he had made a speech in regards something to do with the UK and Brexit. And so this is the initial stages of Brexit. Mm. And the pound had fallen because a lot of the bots that, that people used to buy and sell currency had read the news and they saw, they detected that it's negative. So they started selling. And then the more reasonable like people and other systems kicked in, other actors kicked in, so the price was low and started buying. So it was basically a very, very quick V-shaped curve mm. in, the, in the price of the pound. And it was very interesting because it, it had no explanation. At the time, it was like, and yeah, it was just, so apparently there's also systems and bots that they they have which go in and scan the news and try yeah, to yeah, see yeah. if they're negative and positive. You know, it, it, do, it doesn't surprise me at all. In fact, you know, you have a sub-sector of brokerage, okay, and it's a very um, specific area, okay. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's basically... Um, hedging of different currencies. It's currency trading, okay? And and there's algorithms and all kinds of things on that. And there's so much information, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna buy the dollar and, and sell uh, the euro, or we're gonna sell the euro and, and buy Swiss francs. And, you know, and, and there's all this arbitrage that's going on. And it, and it also works on just some, you know, sometimes just pennies in the short run, yeah. but you don't need a lot when you're dealing with a chunk of 20 million euro. Um, you know, and so this, you know, this all, all this, and there are people who love to do this, but they're much more in tune with, with computerization and everything to be able to figure out. There are ways you can trade it where you can almost lock in a profit, mm. um, however small, but, you know, a few small profits during the course of the day. And, and, uh, that, yeah, and, yeah, and, and you're, you're good. Um, and, and they're at such a speed that a human can never keep up, right? Because oh. everything is basically, they can read and write and everything happens within seconds. You only need to look at, at um, you know, you could do an easy analysis. You could do this very easy historically. You could look back at what's called the trading volume on the New York Stock Exchange. You could look up at what it was, say, 20 years ago versus what it is today. And I would tell you it's probably 10 or 20 times as much in terms of volume. Volume now is measured in, in the billions. And back in the 80s and 90s, it might just have been a few hundred million shares. I'm talking in totality. Mm-hmm. I'm looking to see if I can find, but I don't think it's going to be that easy. It might take you a few minutes to locate that, but you would, you, you would, you would be able to determine uh, how much trading has expanded, and a lot of that, Dylan, is due to computer trading. Yeah. Because they're trading huge blocks. It's this is not little retail customers buying and selling a couple hundred shares. Yeah. So, yeah, basically, what we're talking about is there is a lot of complicated terminology. There's a lot of. Um, very complicated concepts as well. There's a lot of jargon involved. There is um, there's a lot of automation nowadays. So you you have a passion for personal finance, and I know you do from previous conversations. How do you see the individual investor in this? How simple is it in these conditions to actually invest your money and then make some profit? Not even live off it, but mm-hmm. let's say that you wanted to yeah. pay off a house. Like how easy is that? Look at it this way. Most people, you know, let's assume that you're, you're employed mm-hmm. and, you, and you have a pretty decent job and you're working for a large company. You probably have, you might, you probably have a 401k. If you don't, they're probably helping you contribute to an IRA, okay? And over time, you know, that IRA 
can build up to 100,000 or even more. So, so there's your one way of participating in the market. But now you might say, especially in an IRA, you'll say, yeah, well, wait, you know, an IRA can be self-directed. You have the right as, as the owner of that individual retirement account to do pretty much whatever you want inside that account. And so the question is, you know, do you have any expertise at all? And maybe you do and maybe you don't. Now your company would be able to give you a list of mutual funds. And, you know, and they could range from the most, um, you know, mundane mutual fund, which just say it grows based on the S&P 500, or you could go with this high tech blah, blah, blah type of fund that's like really rocket fuel and is very volatile, but has tremendous growth potential. So what's a mutual fund? Uh, well, a mutual, a mutual fund is nothing more than something that's been put together by a, by a mutual fund company okay, where they create a set of parameters, okay, we are going to build a mutual fund that's going to invest in semiconductor stocks, okay? So it's a bunch of company stocks put together, you're, it's you're, a, like a bundle of stocks. Exactly. You are buying a bunch of stocks. Now, many of them are more diversified than others. You see, this is the big thing that we talked about 30 years ago and you still talk about it now. Unless you have a large sum of money, how do you diversify a portfolio so that you're not horribly overweighted in one particular area. Why is that a problem? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is that it, it's either a big problem or it's not. <laughs> and I know, and I know that's, a, that's a crazy answer, but let's just say that, you know, hey, wait a minute, I think semiconductors are the best thing in the world. And so you put your money in semiconductors. Guess what? You'd have been right. It's an enormous growth area. Yeah, I mean, okay. there's nowadays, especially for voltaics. Right. So, you know, I mean, it's funny, we learned this back in the 80s and people, you know, you have to diversify, you have to diversify. No, you don't if you're willing to take on the risk. And see, that opens up a whole can of worms too. If you're 30 years old and you've got 30 years of work left in you and you're going to be making lots of money, hopefully, over those next 30 years, you can afford a level of risk that someone who's 50 or 55 or 60 cannot. Because if you have a loss at the age of 30, you, you're going to be around long enough to make up that loss and then mm. still do well. But if you have a, an incredibly high-risk portfolio when you're 55 and you want to retire at 60 and you get hit, you don't have any time to make it up. Mm. So this is the other thing that you, we learned as, as brokers, and it's a good thing to learn, is that you know risk tolerance of a particular investor and also based on their age and their earnings and how, how long they want to work all factors in to the level of risk that they can afford to take at a particular point in time. Hmm. Uh, but people will tend to, to tell you, look, unless you've got several hundred thousand dollars, the only way you can diversify is by buying mutual funds. And there's nothing wrong with mutual funds unless you want to be hands-on. Someone like me would rather be hands-on. I, I like to do that because rather than taking a shotgun approach, which is what a mutual fund does, you're taking a marksman's approach. Yes, you like semiconductors, but you love NVIDIA. Yeah. Or you love uh, Intel. Or, yeah. what, you know, take your pick. Uh, especially now, again, going back to autonomous vehicles, you have one thing that, for example, the Motley Fool uh, has said is investing, it may be the good time, a good time now to invest in companies which are behind the technology. So now, let's say, BMW because their autonomous vehicles are best or Tesla because their autonomous vehicles are the best but a company which all of those other companies actually go for 
and that they all use, or at least the majority of them use. And and that's sort of an interesting idea as well. Like that would be exactly the maximum approach. So you find a company like that that a lot of these other companies use and say, well, that will obviously explode in five to ten years. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. You know, if I were to give almost anyone some free advice in the subject, and I've learned this the hard way, I would say don't ever look at a company that you love and make a snap decision and say it's overvalued because it, it's only overvalued in your mind at that point mm-hmm. in time. The case we talked about 15 minutes ago or whatever, okay, when Apple hit a trillion dollar market cap, some of the smartest people in the world, you know, the people who get paid a lot of money to determine is that stock worth that price, a lot of people Apple's at a trillion dollar market cap, my God. And guess what? A year later, it's at over two trillion, meaning you've doubled your money in a year. And so the people who said, you know, it's overvalued, they were absolutely dead 100% wrong. I mean, the the whole thing is, at the end of the day, you can be the smartest investor out there, but nobody knows what's going to happen with the market, right? Nobody can predict the future. (laughs) We, I, you know, I, I like to think I know what I'm talking about, but you know, you know, there's a, you, it, it's a good man who knows his limitations. I think mm-hmm. it was Clint Eastwood said that. But the bottom line on this is this: you know, a lot of people have been feeling the market has been horribly overvalued for the last three or four years. Yeah. Okay. And and we we believe it's overvalued today. But even with that said, I wouldn't necessarily bet against it because there's so many things that go into it. If the earnings continue to do well. If we're in a low interest rate environment, you know, if inflation doesn't rear its ugly head, um, you know, who would have thought in March when this pandemic hit, who would have thought that at the depths of this thing, when we didn't really know what we were dealing with and the market had taken a big hit, who would have thought that the averages were going to go up 40%? I mean, the problem is, which are because they went up because of things like Amazon and a lot of the big online retailers and the big the social media, a lot of these platforms that are entirely online that don't need any or almost any physical brick and mortar shops. So I think that's what really jumped up. Yeah, and, and, and that, I think that's a good part of it. And I also believe that what happened was, you know, there was panic. Okay, and so the market took a, a considerable hit when people said, oh my God, we're in a pandemic. But then when cooler heads prevailed, which happened very quickly, by the way, and let's be honest, the pandemic has gotten considerably worse you know, than, than what some people anticipated. Uh, and I think there were people who felt after a year, we'd have the thing under control. We certainly don't. Hmm. Um, nonetheless, when the market dropped like hell um, and pretty much all companies got hit to a certain degree, rather than that being the time, there were people who said, you know, sell, 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 it's gonna get far worse. And if you look at the charts, you'll be able to see that one day where that thing dropped. And guess what? It's had a lovely, lovely incline ever since. It's mm. gone. It's done nothing but go up. That's very strange, isn't it? Well, it is until you realize that the market is a leading indicator and the market will go up way, way before the problems are finished. And, and so the market is looking forward maybe to 2022 mm. when this thing is hopefully in the rearview mirror. Yeah. You would have loved this. Um, let's see. Where did I find this thing? There was a kid from Brockton. Here he is. Wait a minute. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know if you read this. No. This kid from Brockton, he was a track star, and he took 40 grand and put it into GameStock, and he turned it into $16 million. Oh, wow. 
And now the SEC is investigating him. But he's got it covered because he bought the stock a long time ago. He, yeah. he just liked the company. Yeah. I've seen that happen myself. Well, that's what we were talking about in the whole GameStop thing when we were when we were discussing it. We were talking about uh, for a lot of these people, and I'm not the only one who suggested for a lot of these people in the whole GameStop uh, scenario, they had some kind of a relationship to the stock. Yeah. They were they're probably younger, thirties, and in thirties in America, in the in UK, etc. You you're raised with GameStop. Especially if you're a guy, you go there, you buy your games there. You, it was almost like a cultural center. Mm-hmm. And the other thing was AMC as well, which was the same, right? How many people in their 30s would have worked in their teens and early 20s maybe with uh, in GameStop or in AMC? <clears throat> I followed a company, Dylan, back in, oh, say, around 2006-2007, okay? So it was, what, 13, 14 years ago. The name of the company was Microvision. Microvision had, really, the only product that they had was, um, it was a projector that, that, was, that was based on lasers. It was a laser-powered projector, um, which was very tiny mm. and could project an image. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, and the company kept losing money year after year after year. I'll give you an example. And, and if you had just held on to it, okay, here we go. Back in there's okay on March twenty third of last year, so less than a year ago, the stock was trading at nineteen cents. Nineteen cents. Nineteen cents a share. Wow. Okay, in March of two thousand, and there it is today. It's it's eighteen dollars. That's amazing. Okay. So in other words, it's a it's not a hundred wait a minute, let's see, what let's figure it out. It's a hundred times. It's a thousand bagger. No, wait. Uh, uh, 18, 18 cents. cents. Yeah. 18 cents. Wait a minute. 18 so, cents for dollar eighty is ten. No, yeah, it's a hundred it's a hundred yeah, bagger. Okay. Times. So a thousand dollars would have yeah. turned into a hundred grand. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah or yeah, put yeah, another yeah, way, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. if you said what the hell, throw ten grand in it, you'd have a million bucks. Yeah. But with a lot of those the problem is for every one of those companies oh. that makes that transition from Basically nothing to to a mega, you know, mega hit. Then there's a, probably a thousand that don't. So how well, do you know? Well, absolutely. And the other problem that you have, like with this company, okay, there were eight years where the company did nothing, mm-hmm. and you would have you would have given up on it over and over and over. For example, back in let's say 2013, seven or eight years ago, you you would have bought it for a dollar or a dollar and a half and seen it go to 19 cents. Yeah. Now, if you still had that mindset where you say, I don't care, sooner or later, this company is going to be great, you would have kept buying. Yeah. You, would have, you would have done what's called DCA, dollar cost averaging, okay? Mm. And you would have just kept buying more and more shares. And from that 19 cents to 18 bucks, bingo, there's your yeah. money. I mean, realistically, I suppose it depends on how you approach the market and how you approach investing. And you probably know better than me, but I imagine... A lot of people, you know, get in it for the money. So if a stock is doing badly for eight years, then I'm going to be there for those eight years. But on the flip side, if you believe in the product, if you know the product, you believe in it, then you'd probably be able to, you know, stick around. Yeah, you know, especially in technology, and and you know, you only need to look, uh, you know, at all of the averages. The the Dow has done well, okay. Yeah. But the, the but the Nasdaq. Has done far far better. The yeah. Nasdaq tends to be the the smaller cap companies tends to be technologically weighted, and you know that average has just gone gone to the gone to yeah. the moon. Especially um, with COVID now, I imagine. 
Yeah, and you know, and a lot of it is actually real in terms of the fact the reason that the prices have gone up is because the companies are, are doing, you know, fairly well. Yeah. What what a lot of novice investors fail to understand is that if you if you look at the actual intrinsic value, right, say of a company, I mean, you know, people judge it on, on what we talked about the other night, PE. Okay. So it's a price earnings ratio. And it can be anywhere from one, you know, which means that stock is trading at one times earnings, which never happens. It's typically a multiple. Slow growth stocks trade at six, eight, ten times earnings. They might be a utility company, which, which you know, is a nice, solid little company, but not a huge amount of growth. Okay. Yeah. But then you get a company like, say, Amazon or NVIDIA or, well, Tesla is a perfect example. Okay. Yeah. Tesla was wildly overvalued when it was trading at 40 bucks. Yeah. It was wildly over. People, you know, people were shorting it. I know. Yeah. Well, and the reason was they were bleeding money. Yeah. Okay, but but all that all you know, Musk pulled a miracle, and he managed to get the company to profitability a couple of years before most people thought he you would know, do it. I think Musk, I, the guy is maybe I don't know how good of an engineer he is, but he seems to have a very good understanding of business, and he basically. What he did last year or the year before where they said, oh, if you get it to, what was it, a trillion dollar, if you get Tesla to a trillion dollar, we'll give you, I don't know what kind of bonus it was from, it was like a hundred million or something from, from the company. And the guy's like, right, okay. And he gets it to a trillion dollars. I mean, how many people can just decide to get a company to a trillion dollars and get it there without even bothering within, within the deadline that they were given? Well, you know, it, it, he is, he's a remarkable guy. I can't say, you know, that I... You know, what I know about him is similar to what you do, all of yeah. the things that, that I've read. But but he did some stuff that made a great deal of sense. Okay, he, he tried to do something that I would call vertical integration in that company, namely that the more stuff you can control, the better off you are. So in his case, for example, he said, okay, if I'm going to be successful selling electric cars, then I need to be able to build my own batteries. Mm. And so he opened up the Giga factory there, you know, in uh, where the hell, it's in Nevada somewhere. And so he's had some breakthroughs in battery technology. And up until recently, you know, the big quest on, on electric cars has been the range. The range has always been limited and people were concerned about it. But now you have uh, his Tesla with the 100 amps or whatever the heck it is, is, uh, is capable of over 300 miles. That's perfectly fine. Yeah. Um, so, that, so he was able to do that uh, in, in a much shorter period of time. I mean, here's another thing that's remarkable. I mean, to, to tell you how overvalued Tesla is now, even though we thought it was overvalued before, the market capitalization of Tesla is bigger than all other car companies in the world. I yeah. mean, he's bigger than GM, Ford, Chrysler, Peugeot. I think if you throw in a BMW and Mercedes, maybe. But, you know, yeah. in other words, he's yeah. worth a lot of dough. Yeah. I mean, I think he goes into this new crop of companies, which are not their price is not necessarily limited by their fundamentals. And fundamentals in this case would mean, you know, how much money could the company make? How much money is it? What is the revenue? What is, you know, the how much are they spending, etc. So, and a lot of these, because like Twitter is a famous example of that kind of company, which is, they're called unicorns. Mm. And they don't make that much money, or at least a few years ago, they didn't make that much money. And yet they were several billion dollars. They were valued at several billion dollars, which they, they couldn't cover by the fundamentals. And a lot of these new tech companies are like that. The other, you know, the error that even these supposedly really smart analysts made several years ago 
they, they looked at Tesla and they said, okay, what is Tesla? And of course they came up with the oversimplified answer. Well, Tesla is an, is an automobile company. No, it's not. I mean, it is and it isn't, okay? Yeah. In other words, Tesla is a technologically oriented company. Yeah. And here's the, here's the kicker. Uh, an automobile company doesn't sell at a high P.E. A technology company does sell yeah. at a high yeah. P.E. So when people turned around and said, wait a minute, it's not really a car company. It's much more than that. All of a sudden, the stock really began to run up just because it was mispriced. Yeah. Never mind that they were actually doing better, selling more vehicles, making more revenue. But they were mis. You know, they, they were misappropriated or whatever. They were put into a wrong category. Yeah. But there is two things for, about that, I think. So first thing is Tesla. It, uh, Tesla and Musk are very good at, at uh, what Apple did, uh, which is to make you believe in the company, to believe in the brand. Like their brand is very strong. And Tesla is almost like a status symbol. So that's one thing. And yeah. that's, that's always going to be in their favor, like with Apple. Like you have a new iPhone call out. And a million or two million or 20 million people go out and buy that one iPhone. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is Tesla, I think maybe the most valuable thing that they have beyond the batteries is the self-driving algorithms. And Musk seems to have, I think one of the things that Musk has is he's a good leader in terms of he doesn't seem to go around and look what other people are doing and be too worried about what other people are doing. He just wants to do the best and he wants to do what will he thinks would work best and not worry about you know other people's technology considering that a lot of the experts that you listen to on a regular basis would say oh autonomous vehicles are the way of the future and will definitely be driving autonomous vehicles in 50 years or something musk has a lot of those algorithms and teslas can do that now uh, i think they're level three uh autonomous vehicles that they have at the moment mm -hmm. on the road so you can just turn it on, and the only problem is you fall asleep. And we've seen that. There have been some videos of that. But, you know, let's, let, to use a term I don't particularly like, but let's do this anyway. Let's circle back right. okay, uh, to, to Apple, because uh, that's a fascinating case study, okay? That company has, has been, you know, tried to be dead and buried by many people for the last 10 years. When, when did uh, Jobs pass away? That's got to be yeah. seven, eight years ago, maybe more. I can look it up. I mean... Uh, Steve has been gone quite a while. Yeah. And, you know, I remember very distinctly, people didn't say, oh my God, Apple is going to go away. But they said, well, that's it. The growth phase of Apple is now gone because the brilliance of Steve Jobs, you can't duplicate this person. He died in 2011. You're talking nearly 10 years. Yeah. If you were to go back to 2011 and see what Apple stock was versus where it is now, you would find that it has probably, it's probably up five or six hundred percent. I don't think a company like Apple would, they cannot make it that big with just the one person at the top. Like that, you need also a solid upper echelon to be able to be that big and that successful. Yeah, well, you know, which they have, but see, you know, again, a lot of people fail to understand when the iPhone came out and became a, a very large portion of Apple's revenue, you know, people say, well, they're, you know, they're a one-trick pony. Their whole basis is on the iPhone. That's not really true. I mean, you know, Apple's got all kinds of stuff going on. In fact, you may or may not know they are looking into to, to, to building cars. You'd say, what I've in the world? That, yeah. You've heard it, right? I mean, it doesn't sound like a great match, but, but again, Apple's a technology company. These cars of the future are yeah. going to be tech. 
Um, you know, who would have known years ago, well, gee, uh, Apple's going to, there's going to be an Apple watch. There's going to be all kinds of stuff mm. that Apple is, is doing. Um, it's kind of like another company that yeah. has gone crazy. And I think Apple, did. they also seem to have a very good sense, at least I think so, in, in the way that now with all the concerns about safety, with all the concerns about privacy and all that, and every few months you hear a story of Facebook selling your data, Facebook, Google selling your data, you know, uh, you click three times on Facebook and they know your life story, basically. Instagram, there was a, a story last year with Instagram turning on your camera uh, whenever they want, or at least that w- those were the allegations. And a lot of people are looking and, and they're full of it. They're uh, sick of it and they want to go and have to, to have their own privacy and to say, well, you know what? I don't want you to spam me. You have no business looking at where I go, where mm-hmm. I am. And you can log in right now on your Google profile in the security settings and you can see they have a map of where you've been. <laughs> Uh, and it's scary, can, isn't it? Yeah, and it's, yeah. you can supposedly turn it off, but sure, it doesn't show it to me anymore, but do they still not have it? And Apple now, in these times, they've said, no, we are the security company. And here, we're giving you all your security, all your control is yours now. And we'll make sure that in our on our platforms, this is security mm-hmm. is the key, and you own your data. I mean, okay, you pay less for a Google phone, but even now, that, but Samsung is pretty much the same price. Like the difference is in Motorola, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but how many people buy Motorola's, right? Versus Samsung. So Apple and, and Android are pretty much the same price now. And one says, you have power over your life. And the other says, we'll sell you out to everyone. I mean, I mean, you know what, what I think one of the many things that has made Apple so successful is what is, is their customer retention. Okay. In other words, you know, Mary and I bought Apple phones about 15 years ago. And we've never gone back. I, mm-hmm. I started with Android because Android was available, as you know, before Apple even started. There were Android phones um, that were available way back when. And I actually had one for my business. I want to say it was back around, uh, oh, my God, it had to be like 1996, mm-hmm. 1997. I, I, you know, Apple may have existed, but I don't think the iPhone existed back then uh, or maybe the first phase of it. But, you know, another thing now, you may, you, I'm sure you're aware of this, Dylan. Here's the thing that's really interesting. It was about seven or eight years ago. Mary and I are snapping all kinds of pictures on our iPhones and everything else. And then I get this notice from Apple. Yeah. Um, you have reached your five gigabyte limit. And so we can't go store any more of your pictures on the cloud. Yeah. Um, but don't worry about it. For 99 cents a month, we're going to give you 50 gigs. Okay. And you'll never have to worry again. And I assume that 99% of people said, what the hell, it's 99 cents and there's your credit card. Okay, so as it turns out, there's 650 million people Mm. worldwide who are paying 99 cents. A month. Right, a month. So basically a dollar, and that's like, how much did you say? $650 million a month. So it's gotta be 99% incremental, right? That's, um, I think it's 7 billion, if my math is right, it's about $7 billion a year. Something like that, yeah. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's re- very decent, yeah. <laughs> Recurring revenue that doesn't cost you a damn thing. I mean, no, uh, it does, it does. Because like, mm-hmm. they have to have the servers, they have to cool, cool them, etc. But the thing is, Apple has those servers anyway because they have their cloud storage right. and their cloud services, which they sell additionally. So they throw on a few more servers over there for the, you know, they have to have the servers for, they have Apple TV, they have, like, they have a lot of things now. 
So, you know, this is what makes the investment world so fascinating. I remember when let's let's go back to Apple four. We're we're now on Apple twelve or whatever iPhone twelve. So back around Apple four or Apple five or whatever, you know, the um, the folks who review these phones were beginning to say, you know. Every time Apple comes out with a new phone, it's a little bit better, but it's a lot more expensive, and it's this and it's that. And how, how long can this go on? Well, this was back in like 2009, and here we are in 2021, and it's gone on and on and on. And then people were also saying, you know, when an iPhone hits $1,000, which is an unbelievable number, no one's going to buy them. Well, you know what? They're, they're buying them. Yeah. Because the people, you know, these young people today who are making 100, 150k or whatever, they look at it like it's a grand, big deal. I think it, I don't know. I think it's more talking about the marketing of Apple than it is about the wealth in society. I mean, I suppose you could say it is about the wealth in society in a way, but it's more about inflation rather than standard of living. Look, they've also done a brilliant marketing deal with the. Um, you know, with the providers, I'm talking the Verizons of the world. Yeah. Okay, you know, granted, most of the people who buy these have the thousand bucks, but what what they've done? Look, don't worry about it. You know, you're paying your Verizon bill. We're going to take the thousand dollars, and you know something? Uh, over 24 months, it's 42 bucks a month. Come yeah. on, you know you want this new phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're right. It's that that probably had a great effect. And yeah, you have that everywhere. They, every country has that. I, I actually think the majority of people buy it that way. And in a way, it's much better because if you do the math for Apple, I mean, because mm-hmm. if you do the math, a lot, obviously, over the time period, you add up to probably 20% over the price of the phone if you buy it outright. So that's a nice little markup right there, right? But even, you know, here's the thing. It's what I refer to uh, as a win-win. What it does, it kind of locks you in to the provider. You sure can't leave, right? Mm -hmm. Because after all, if you leave, you've got $700 balance on the phone. And you're taking this $1,000 phone and splitting it into 24 pieces. So what's happening? Apple's getting their money. The Verizons of the world are getting a locked-in customer for that period of time because to unlock, you got to write them a big check. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the retention rate. It's pretty, is, is pretty high. So it works, I think, for both yeah. parties. I'd love to have been a fly in the wall to, to, to see how that deal was negotiated. Initially, yeah. And, well, this goes again to the fundamentals of a company, right? To why the market cap of Apple is so high. And Apple was the first company to reach... One trillion. Yeah. First trillion dollar company okay. in the and, world. Yeah. And, and, you know, and so... At a tri- but here's the thing, Dylan. This is what is remarkable. I remember it reached a trillion. And it was, I want to say... 2017, or maybe it was 2018, we can certainly look it up, yeah. okay? But here's the here's the kicker. It's over two trillion now. Yeah. In fact, I, when it hit two trillion, I said, now I wonder, it's not gonna make three trillion, but you know something? It's tacked on about another 240 billion. Yeah. So the market cap of Apple right now is, I would guess, is two trillion, 240 billion dollars. Yeah. And, Okay, I let me just look that up for a second. Well, you know what? It's yeah, we can do that in a real quick. Two point three trillion. Two point three trillion. Yeah, we could take a peek real easy, and we could determine when they hit two billion. It actually was. You mean trillion? 
it actually was higher in January of this year. Mm-hmm. It was 2.4 trillion. Yes, yes. Uh, it went from it came down from 143. But in terms of well, they don't they don't give you a market cap that doesn't move. So what is a market cap actually? Can you explain? Yeah, that? sure. It's, it's it's actually pretty damn easy. What a market cap is a company a company has a float. Okay, the float is not necessarily the number of, of shares that are authorized. Okay, a company will have a certain number of shares authorized. That is what makes up the ownership of the company. Mm-hmm. And the market cap is nothing more than how many the authorized number of shares times the price per share. Mm-hmm. So, so in the case if we did if we took a look at Apple, okay, which is worth uh, two point three trillion, and the stock is one hundred and thirty five dollars. If you divided 135 into 2.3 trillion, you mean 2.3 divided by? Uh, however, yeah. In other words, you need to divide the market cap by the by the price per share to come up with how many shares there are. Yeah. So how um, much was the share? 135 bucks. So at the moment, Apple have about 17 million shares you mean, available to buy. You mean 17 billion? No, 17 million. Because uh, oh no, yeah, yeah, 17. Billion, yeah. Because I <laughs> he, actually these numbers are tricky. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know why I got it? I was like, yeah, and I wrote billion instead of trillion dollars for the market cap. <laughs> right. So it's such a big number. And you know that's a huge flow. Okay, yeah. that is a really huge flow. Um, but you know, again, you see, here's here's what makes investing so so tricky. You know, when they when when the market cap of Apple hit a trillion dollars, people were saying. You know, come on, guy. Come on, man. I mean, this is pretty crazy, you know. Uh, and I'm saying, well, why is it crazy? Okay, the PE is kind of high, but it's the growth company of the ages, right? Yeah. It's the, the margins that these people are making is obscene. Um, and, and so instead of the company falling back, you know, to eight or nine hundred billion, um, only, only yeah. <laughs> they 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 kind of doubled in a matter of about two years. But do you know what? Because we're no longer dealing with these standard companies. Because you think of of U.S. steel, for example. What do they make? Well, they make steel. Where in the U.S. right? That's not what the beast that Apple is. Like that's similarly to not the beast that Amazon is. These companies have music labels. They have app stores. They have their own platforms. They have their own hardware production. They have their own software production. They have the, the, the amount of power. They have their own news outlets. They have their own um, cloud services. So basically a company like Apple, even if you don't know you're using Apple, if you make it your life's mission to not use Apple, you're still probably using something with Apple. There's no question about it. Because um, their, no. their cloud services alone are hugely influential and a lot of other retailers and a lot of other services and companies use their cloud services. Sure. I'm going to give you an amazing statistic which I just looked at okay, right. on my little on my Apple iPhone. <clears throat> Apple went from under a trillion dollars to over two trillion dollars in less than a year. That's I'm serious and I can show it to you. Here, keep in mind what's half of 135? 67? Yeah. 68? Okay. Apple was 65 bucks. You see it here? Yeah. 65 bucks a share on April 7th of 2020. It's more than doubled from 65 to 130, right? That would have been a double. It's at 135. That tells me that the stock was at a trillion dollars last April. Yeah. 
It's now at 2.3 trillion. So let me ask you this question. Do you think that's exciting or scary? Um, neither. And, uh, and the reason is because, the, you know what, the, the valuation is, is re it's reasonable. It, okay, the P.E., the price-earnings ratio right. of Apple right now, you might say, what is it, 100, 200, 300? 37, okay? Apple is, is the most valuable company in the world because they are the most profitable company in the world, They're publicly traded. There may be yeah. something going on in Saudi Arabia or wherever I don't know about. Mm. But um, Apple makes a absolute ton of money. Yeah, and so their their valuation uh, based on, on what they earn is, is warranted. Had we only realized that last April, doubling your money in 10 months is not half bad. No. Um, keeping in mind that you're not talking about a game stock either. You're talking about a, a huge capitalization yeah. company that makes gobs of money every minute of every day. I mean, Apple is a pretty secure investment usually, no? You know, if, if, you, really, if, you, if you really want to get sick to your stomach with regard to, uh, the, you know, the loss opportunity, you only need to go back. You wouldn't have to go back more than, say, five years, okay? Five years ago... You would have you would have bought Apple for for twenty dollars on a split adjusted basis. So so you would have gone from twenty to one hundred and forty. That's seven times your money. Okay, so I'm gonna use this to transition to another topic, which I am really curious about. So you used to be a broker, right? Uh, or what? What did you use? To do? Yeah, I I was I was doing retail stock brokerage business for what about twenty two years, but back when. Back when um, you did not have all of this online trading, I don't know how people are, are making a living now. And I'm referring now to a retail broker. I'm not talking about a big guy on Wall Street, just a typical run-of-the-mill broker. Um, what has to happen today to be successful, you need to have uh, an enormous amount of what's called AUM. AUM stands for Assets Under Management, mm. okay? Because as you know, you are able to trade online now for free. Well, you certainly you know don't don't want your broker to be charging you thirty, forty, fifty, a hundred dollars every time you trade, particularly if you're an active trader. So what's happened is there's been a transition in terms of the way that a retail broker is compensated, and and they are compensated really on assets under management because what happens between the broker and the client within the confines of what his or her brokerage firm allows, you, you work on what's called basis points, mm -hmm. okay? Basis point, you know, meaning a hundredth of 1%. 100 basis points is 1%. Mm -hmm. So you come to me with a uh, half a million dollars, okay? And I would probably manage that half a million dollars for you for, uh, let's see, uh, 500, uh, 80 basis points. And you might say, well, so what is it? It's $4,000. That's, mm. you know, that's, and, and so basically I come to you with half a billion and you have a, well, I was thinking 500,000, $500,000. Yeah, so $500, yeah. Okay. And I would, I would take an account like that because again, I'm a small time broker. I'm not mm. a big wall street guy because I look at it this way. If I had a hundred people mm. each with 500,000, I now have 50 million under, mm. under management. If I have 50 million under management, uh, at 80 basis points, uh, I, I am paid $400,000. Mm -hmm. That's you pretty know. good, yeah. Yeah. 
well, try to find, you know, again, it's very hard. How do you find, you know, how do you, I know you've got half a million floating around, but the point is, you know, where do you find the other 99 people, right? Yeah, But we would, we would, we would go after all your, your friends, your family, yeah. your relatives, your sister, yeah. your brother, your aunt, your uncle, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and all of them are, of course, multimillionaires. Yeah, absolutely. Right. But, you know, perhaps you've seen the ads on TV, and they are legitimate, okay? By, by working with a client who is willing to pay you based on the level of the assets. So let's just use 80 basis points as a, as a starting point. That's $4,000, okay, on a half a million. And the way we bill that is monthly, okay? So it's, uh, well, it's a little less than 350 bucks a month. Hmm. Now, what incentive, okay, does the broker have? Well, he's got a lot of incentive. And the beauty of it is it's on the very same side as you, the client, because I want to get your account from 500,000 to 600,000. I really do. Because when you hit 600,000, okay, uh, at it, it, the same 80 basis points, guess what? I'm now charging you 4,800. Okay, so I'm on the same side of the equation as you. I want your account to grow. Whereas if I'm trying to make a living uh, on transactional business, I'm going to charge you $25 every time I trade. It's, you know, you're kind of on opposite ends of the thing. This happened 20 some odd years ago. I worked next to a fella and, and he owned a boat and this boat drank a lot of gas. And so it's like the 24th of the month. We're running out of time, man. There's not much time left in the month. You know, I, I got the, the boat holds 350 gallons. Time to churn them and burn them. That was his expression, not mine. <laughs> And he would get on the phone and he'd say, you know, listen, you know, you know, you got to sell the 500 IBM and got to buy the uh, 500 Oracle systems and we got to do this. And, we, you know, and the reason we have to do that, he would never, of course, tell you that his boat needed gas. Yeah, it's like, you know, yeah. this is going to make your portfolio better. Yeah. Okay. Promise you it will. So the transactions got done. He booked a couple of thousand dollars of revenue and he was able to gas up his boat. Yeah. That doesn't work anymore. Well, that was... That was the model which at least partially led to 2008, wasn't it? Well, yeah, you know, any time you, you don't have two people on the same side of things, there's, there's certainly, um, you know, cause for a great deal of concern. Okay, there's a term that's being used now called fiduciary responsibility. And, and, and it's a good thing. I mean, you know... See, even though the Securities and Exchange Commission was supposedly enforcing things and they were not supposed to be rogue, what we call rogue brokers, there were rogue brokers. They were there. And they somehow managed to flip between all of the regulators and everything else and they made a living. But of course, it was, you know, dirty business. Most, if not all of them, are gone. And the reason is because the means of generating revenue now has changed really to the asset under management model. There's nobody out there doing transactional business because transactions are free. Yeah, they'll, they'll go out of business. Well, yeah, and so you might say, you know, someone who's not is necessarily totally knowledgeable on how it works would say, wait a second, how does Fidelity, for example, Fidelity allows you to trade for free. So, for, well, Fidelity is a big investment bank, basically, right? Well, yeah, but there's still a cost. They still, you know, it's like you say, how much does it cost Apple to store your photos? I don't know. It's probably not much. 
How much does it cost Fidelity to do a trade? It's probably not much. The way the money is made, okay, is that every stock has two prices. What do you mean it's got two prices? Well, it's got a bid and it's got an ask. And, and the bid and the ask have a spread. And that spread can be as little as a penny. Typically, it's two, three, four cents on some what we call thinly traded stocks. A thinly traded stock would mean a stock that doesn't trade tens of millions of shares, maybe only a few thousand or a few hundred thousand. And then the bid-ask spread can be 10 cents. Well, all of a sudden, you say, well, what's 10 cents? Well, 10 cents on a thousand shares is a hundred bucks. So the way Fidelity and people like Fidelity make money is they're buying not at the bid necessarily, they're buying somewhere in the middle. And because they're doing enormous volume, tens of millions of shares, all they need to make is a penny, penny a share, mm. or even a fraction of a penny. Um, and they never lose because they're, they're, they're buying it somewhere in the middle and they're charging the client the ask. Okay, yeah. You're paying the ask and everybody knows they're paying the ask, but they're shaving a little bit off. Yeah. So basically, Fidelity is using their size as a customer and saying, look, we will buy X amount of 100,000 shares of Apple. And all you have to do is reduce the price for us by that much. And then they sell it at the regular price. Well, yeah, it's kind of that way. But see, at any given point in time, you know, you have not only do you have a bid or an ask, you also have the number of shares that are available at that mm. price. And, and that price moves, obviously, throughout the day. So there might be 10,000 shares available at 100 bucks. And if I buy those 10,000 shares at 100, well, guess what? There won't be more available until maybe it's $100.03 or $100.05. So it, it will move. Typically, if you are a really good trader and you put in an order, you'll put it in at the market hmm. as opposed to at a price. If you want the whole thing filled, you may only get a partial fill. Okay, a partial fill on a thousand might be, you'll buy 500 hmm. at that hundred dollars. And you're gonna pay a nickel more maybe for those other five. But you knew that going in because you placed a market order. If on the other hand, you placed an order at a set price, you said, I, I'm only paying a hundred bucks. Hmm you get a partial fill. They'd only be able to buy those 500 at the $100. Yeah. I got to get going. Okay. Uh, nice discussion, Dylan. Yeah. You know, but yeah, we could, you know, me personally, I mean, I can talk about finance all all day yeah. because it's such a it's such an interesting area. Um, well, thanks for coming in, Andy. And right, thanks man. for the talk. Yeah, no no worries. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate us, like, and share. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram, where we are at Pine Talks. From the whole Pine Talks team, we hope you have an awesome day.